architecture. Okay. And architecture. Okay. All right. So at the risk of making our intro sound like a post-war absurdist play, architecture is about more than architecture. Uh, All right. I think I see where you're going with this. Uh, It's common to think of architecture as landmark buildings, but it's a lot more than that. Architecture is central to housing and community development, and it's especially important now when we want to think about uh, closing the affordable housing gap, advancing opportunity for renters, and addressing long-time inequities. That's a lot to put on architecture and on architects, but it's a challenge the field is taking on, not just in the buildings, but in the approach to design. Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast. I'm Steve Guggenmoss. And I'm Corey Aber. So from our vantage point, we spend a lot of time thinking about the housing market, affordability, the needs of renters, and and the policy environment. But there's another really important piece of the housing puzzle. Who is designing housing and how they go about it? Today on the show, we are joined by Jason Pugh. Jason is the 2021 through 2022 president of the National Organization of Minority Architects, known as NOMA. Uh, He's both a licensed architect and a certified planner and a principal architect and urban designer at Gensler's Chicago office. He's also currently on Chicago's executive board for the ACE, uh, Architecture, Construction, and Engineering Mentor Program. So uh, Jason, perhaps no better person than you to, to talk about this today. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Really, really excited to be here um, and just appreciate the opportunity to come in, share uh, share uh, some of the work and the projects that, uh, that I've touched across my career and also some of the important work that NOMA and our members have been doing across the country. You know, it feels like we're in the midst of a really important period across the housing industry, certainly, and in the architecture field. Uh, and your work at Gensler and, and NOMA, and NOMA's work more broadly, right, intersects in many ways with some of the broader themes that we touched on in the intro. So I think it would be helpful just as an entry point in our discussion if we could start with a little background on NOMA. Sure, absolutely. So NOMA is a nonprofit organization, uh, membership-based organization that has been around for well over 50 years. In fact, last year we celebrated our 50th anniversary, the founding of the organization. And it was founded by 12 African-American architects who actually came together to really provide a network and a support system, infrastructure, and uh, um, a brotherly bond to support each other and help each other advance their profession, advance their careers and their practices in architecture. And you fast forward today, the organization is well over 3,500 plus members. We have uh, 35 chapters, professional chapters, all across the country. And we have over 90 student chapters across multiple college campuses and universities with accredited architecture programs. So the organization itself is really, at the end of the day, focused on the recruitment, retention, and advancement of minority architects in the industry, which in terms of the representation uh, and that disparity is pretty, pretty low. Um, Just uh, for frame of reference, just uh, for context, just so you understand, well, when it comes to the number of licensed Black architects that are currently practicing in the uh, United States, less than uh, 2% are Black. When it comes to Black female licensed architects, that percentage is less than 0.3%. So when we talk about who's doing the work and in what communities, 
um, it becomes a much, much more, I think, um, dynamic and intriguing story uh, when we talk about the disparities and low representation across the board with minority architects. Those numbers are incredibly low, and it's great that there's this organization that's been around for 50 years, building momentum probably right now, I imagine, as, uh, as this is such an important topic. Are there things that come along with the 50th anniversary or, or you know, things that are happening right now that are particularly noteworthy? Absolutely. Well, it's interesting. We're at a really, really, I think, pivotal and important moment. Um, I would say prior to the summer of 2020 with the murder of George Floyd and what I like to call the racial awakening uh, of this country, even prior to that, there was already a DEI wave, diversity, equity, inclusion wave that was really sweeping through multiple industries across the board. And it was really starting to uh, hit uh, the architecture, building and design industry uh, as well. And it was coming in the form of our clients. Um, this wasn't something that I would say necessarily the architecture design industry was leading. It was actually something that we were reacting to. Fast forward about a decade, you have uh, the green movement, sustainability and design and, and lead design across projects. That was something that architects were leading, right? We were educating the public we were educating our clients, explaining the return on investment and why sustainability and green design was important in every single project. Um, once, it, I would say, when the DEI wave was actually hitting the design industry, uh, in and of itself was caught flat-footed, and we were more so reacting to this wave that was hitting the industry, and it was coming from our clients. Our clients were asking us, what does the diversity makeshift of your team look like? What does the diversity of your leadership look like? What is your stance on CSR, corporate social responsibility, right? And so we were, in a lot of cases, caught off guard, didn't have great responses, answers, poor, poor representation at big and small firms alike. And so the the, the industry started to mobilize and, and really started to, I think, have bigger, broader conversations around this. So NOMA Again, an organization that has been around for 50 years, our membership base is really, really diverse. We are, of course, primarily being founded by 12 Black architects. Our membership base is primarily African-American. We have approximately a little more than 40% of our membership base are uh, Black architects, but uh, we also have uh, 17% are uh, Latino. There's another 14% that are Asian um, and even uh, 12, 13% that are actually white, uh, white professionals and architects and designers um, who are all dedicated and focused on NOMA's mission and cause again, which is to expand the recruitment, retention and advancement of minority architects. And so you have an organization that's been around for 50 years that has been leading these conversations. Sometimes, you know, we're, 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 we're uh, preaching to the choir, um, but in, and you know, banging on doors and really, really fighting to get a seat at the table in, in order to be a part of these conversations. And then within an instant, all of a sudden, there's this new focus that's coming from the industry, the pressure from our clients, right, who are holding the, the, uh, the, the purses, the, the, the pocketbooks. And, you know, that's really kind of driving and pushing it. And so it was a, it was a really, really interesting moment, I would say, the, those years leading up to 2020. And then with the racial awakening of the summer of 2020, it really exploded. And all of a sudden, everyone in the building and design industry was looking towards Noma, trying to find ways that, that they could partner, that they could connect, where they could support 
our mission uh, and help us uh, move the goal towards expanding and changing the, um, the, the, the face, the diversity, and the face of architectural building design industry. So tremendous moment. That all overlapped again with our 50th anniversary, the founding of the organization. So it's just been a really, really uh, tremendous, important time. Um, one of the things that we've been focused on, I would say, uh, within this moment is ensuring that we are building really, really strong partnerships, uh, strategic partnerships with partners, firms, allied organizations, and even even uh, supporters outside of the industry um, that we can really, I think, uh, connect with, dial in, try to find ways where there's uh, alignment and synergy across our strategies and our, and our initiatives and, and really work together to help move the needle. Thinking about some of those things that, that you're starting to work on now, and you know, can we go through maybe a, a few of the, the things that you and some of these other organizations are, are putting in place and maybe how NOMA fits in with you know, their variety of uh, trade organizations in, in the architecture field? How, do, how does that come together? Sure, sure, absolutely. So, well, one of the things that we've been focused on is, um, you know, just increasing the overall um, number of licensed minority architects, right? And so, there's just in general a, a big focus on the resources that are in place. Uh, how do we support our members? And our organization is unique because we don't have we don't just have professional members, but we have student members, right? So, there has to be a lot of infrastructure and support in place for that pipeline. You have to build that pipeline and ensure that those one that there are that there's an active and healthy number of minority students that are enrolling and entering architectural programs every year. Two, that they are successful in uh, going through the programs, finding summer internships, graduating from those programs, and being able to uh, get connected with jobs and opportunities coming out of school. And then three, as they are entering the workforce and and, uh, really starting to take foot as young professionals, that they are able to be successful in uh, their work, in their projects, and prepare themselves effectively to take their exams uh, to become licensed. Architecture is one of those industries where, you know, you don't just go to school and get an architecture degree and and that's it. Um, There are a series of exams, uh, six exams currently, Uh, different exams that you have to pass uh, in order to become and call yourself a licensed architect. And so for us, that is one of uh, major, 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 I would say, uh, initiative programs. A lot of our programs are dedicated towards supporting building those pipelines uh, all the way from, I would say, high school students to licensure, what what we actually call um, our project pipeline initiative. That's that's really great how you can... um kind of impact those students. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, when they see somebody like you who's come into the industry and not only are you contributing in the industry, but you're taking your own time and, and doing this in a volunteer role, heading up NOMA at this point, which uh, which I'm sure is plenty of responsibility with that as well. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about your background and uh, and, and what they see and what, the, what they can kind of picture for themselves in the future. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that you can't be what you can't see. And so it is critically important that architects, designers, minority architects and designers find opportunities to connect and engage with the next generation, to connect with young students. Oftentimes, there are just so many barriers and challenges into even going into the the industry, the architecture design industry. And it's not on the top of the list of most students. It's one of those professions historically has been 
almost discouraged uh, for a lot of different reasons. Um, there's there was always a sense of elitism, um, I would say, with the profession, where people were uh, excluded or or pushed out, um, and then even uh, traditionally in a lot of architectural schools, there was a weeding out process where. You know, you had to make the cut in order to even stay in, in a program and, and graduate. And so I think we've seen a lot of that subside and change over the years. And what we're recognizing now, at least with architecture, that is in, in order to connect with the students, you have to do it at an early age. You cannot connect with these students when they're a junior or a senior in high school. In most cases, by then, sometimes it's too late. Um, we, you really have to plant that seed about design, about how they engage and interact with space at a much, much earlier age. And so for me, I was definitely a product of that. Um, Even though I did not know any architects growing up, I somehow found the profession, found interest in the profession very, very early. Um, I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Uh, I was raised in a single uh, parent household. Um, in a, uh, a lower class neighborhood, lower class minority neighborhood on the east side of Denver. And, um, but I really, really excelled at art. So in my family, we had, at least in my, in my household, we had what we called the triple A's. And that was athletics, uh, art, and academics. And so my mom would not support anything that didn't fall in one of those three buckets. And um, at a very, very early age, I uh, was uh, really, really interested and uh, talented in visual arts. And over time, actually, you know, went around the, the city and even the state when I was, I would say, maybe 11, 12, 13 years old, selling my artwork at different festivals and church events and my mom was serving as my business manager i mean it was you know it, it, it was great and so and at these different festivals uh, street fairs um, i would always be featured as the youth artist you know come check out the youth artists and um a lot of different artists that were that were there as well started to connect with me and take me under their wing and they started to teach me these different mediums different types of of uh, art and mediums that i could actually explore at a very very early age and i got to a point where i would say early in high school maybe like ninth grade ninth tenth grade where i was kind of looking around at all, all of my mentors amazing artists these guys were amazing artists uh, men and women were just amazing artists but they all fit the mold of the starving artist mold. And I was asking myself, you know, I, I don't want to be a broke, starving artist. When I get older, what is it? What can I do where I could still utilize my artistic skill sets and talents? But there's a clear path for me to follow, right? With art, like it's a little bit nebulous and vague. You don't really quite know, you know. You don't have to go to college, you know, you don't have to go to school. There's a lot of different paths, you know, towards becoming an artist. But I wanted something that was a little bit more concrete, a plan that I could follow that was a little bit more secure and that was part of a respected, well, well uh, respected profession. And so I had an art teacher that suggested architecture. And for whatever reason, I have no clue, it just stuck. And and that was what I decided that that I wanted to do. And so I, I ended up uh, pursuing uh, architecture. And when I graduated from high school, uh, I ended up going to Howard University in Washington, D.C. Went to a couple schools before then. We won't, we won't go into that before I found my way at, at Howard. I don't want to deviate from the story. But 
found my way uh, my third year of college at Howard University um, uh, in Washington, D.C., which is an HBCU, Historically Black College and University, and uh, one of seven. There are only seven uh, HBCUs that have uh, architecture-accredited programs. Um, and really, really, I would say found my village, found just so much support, found my family in terms of my professors, my mentors, my classmates, um, you know, all who are really, really uh, intricately tied into my life even today. And that was really, I, I would say, you know, the beginning of my career. And so came out of the program. Uh, most architecture programs are either a five-year program or a four and two. Howard's program specifically was a five-year program. So came out of the five-year program with a BA in architecture design. And um, while I was an undergrad, I took an elective course in urban design and urban design and planning and really, really loved it. I loved the idea of approaching sites beyond just the property boundary, actually, you know, really responding more so to the context and looking at things at, at different scales and letting the existing context and, and, and character of a community influence your design. And so decided that I wanted to pursue a master's degree in urban design and went to Columbia University in New York, uh, where I got my master's of science in architecture and urban design. And so and, and so since that time, since graduating and entering the workforce, uh, working briefly in New York and then in Chicago now for the last 15 uh, plus years, 16 years, geez, time's flying, um, really started to um, make sure that I kept myself grounded, but, but like oscillated back and forth between the macro and the micro scales, trying to really find a way to touch both architecture and urban design projects. And the ones that I, over time, have really, really gravitated towards have been um, ones that are focused on development underserved and marginalized communities. Um, a lot of uh, mixed use, mixed income, affordable housing uh, type of developments, um, both here in Chicago and primarily in the South and the West side, but also throughout the Midwest and even on the East coast. So yeah, that's 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 been my journey uh, thus far in terms of uh, my uh, the work and the projects that I touch in my education. And that connection between architecture and buildings and the the broader community design, urban design part that seems to be also like sort of consistent with a growing focus in in the industry now. How are you? You know, how you know some of your projects and your work there kind of lined up with that focus. I would say the projects that I love the most are the ones that have a community engagement strategy, a heavy, heavy community engagement strategy involved. I love connecting with the residents. I love connecting with the end users of a space. I love making sure that they feel they are part of the process and have real ownership, that they can see their fingerprints on a design or a development. And so I really love building a consensus between the stakeholders, the developer, the client, the residents, the end users, you know, local politicians, aldermen, um, you know, those opportunities are the ones that I really, really, really enjoy. And so most of the projects that I've been able to touch, um, you know, here in Chicago have uh, really, uh, in some cases, kind of came out or were born or, or, or uh, born out of a larger community master plan. Uh, and then we had an opportunity to come in and do some of that first phase architecture. So there's one project in particular that's uh, coming to mind, and it's uh, Woodlawn Station, uh, which is 
Uh, it's a TOD project. It's at the it's on the south side of Chicago, at the very very end of the Green Line, off the 63rd and Cottage Grove, and and it's in Woodlawn, the Woodlawn community, and 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 it was literally one of those projects that started as a neighborhood master plan. There was the if you don't know much context about uh, Woodlawn, South Side Chicago, this is right next to Jackson Park. In Jackson Park, which is directly along Lake Michigan, um, along uh, Lakeshore Drive, uh, is the location for the OPC, the Obama Presidential Center. And so when that site was announced, obviously there was a lot of interest, a lot of of focus, a lot of new development and outside parties coming into this community and really starting to uh, buy up some of the city and vacant land starting to buy up some of the property and, and a lot just heavy, heavy in development. And so the community really uh, fought back and pumped the brakes on this. They were worried, obviously, for, you know, outsiders coming in them. Uh, you know, they were worried about gentrification. They were worried about not having control over uh, the development of their community where they have been entrenched and they have lived for, you know, generations uh, in some cases. And so, we held this neighborhood um, uh, community. Well, we we a series of neighborhood community meetings, but it was uh, really all part of the major master plan for one Woodlawn. And out of that, we were able to identify, I think, a, a series of different strategies and priorities for the community to follow. Uh, one in both, I think, partnering and vetting outside developers and partners that uh, wanted to, you know, help build Woodlawn. Uh, but then, two, I think just kind of giving them a clear vision of where they wanted to see their community go and how they want to see it develop and, and in what order or phase. And so one of the sites that came out of that was this major node intersection at 63rd and Cottage Grove, where there was a client, uh, POA, which is um, the company's POA Preservation of Affordable Housing. They had a site where they were, wanted to do a mid-rise mixed-use TOD project, uh, affordable housing project, 55-plus units in ground-level retail. And seeing us engage and work with the client, with the communities, uh, with the residents during these community meetings, um, they approached Gensler to, uh, to help them with this project. And so um, really, really great project um, that, that I really, really enjoyed. And, and the last funny piece that I'll, that I'll share, which is you know on the complete 180 opposite end, both physically and, and um, literally is... Um, at the opposite end of the Green Line, when you go west into Oak Park, which is, um, you know, one of the last neighborhoods and communities um, uh, in Chicago before you officially get out of the city boundary, is Oak Park. And um, actually, my, one of my very first residential uh, projects was a luxury residential uh, project, a high rise uh, that I worked on. One of my first projects actually at Kenzer, uh, you know, ten plus years ago. Um, on the exact opposite end, uh, which is also a similar TOD project, but completely different in terms of context, users, uh, you know, budget, scale, um, and also the end users and, and the attempt that it was trying to serve. But two very, very different, unique uh, residential projects that are almost bookend on each end of the green line. Oh, that, that's fascinating. And the, the work that you were doing, uh, you know, with POA and, and in the community there, when you engaged in that and, and all of that sort of development and interest in in that neighborhood uh, built up from those outside the neighborhood, what was some of that work like with the community? What were some of the concerns you were hearing and, and how did you bring people together and get support for, for projects and or influence the projects? 
Sure. So I think, you know, the first is, you know, I think having just kind of larger, honest conversations around gentrification, right. Um, you know, uh, what's neat. I mean, it's, it, it, in most, I would say community meetings, you know, it's almost like a bad word and, you know, there's, there's no possible way that you can talk about uh, gentrification in a positive light, you know, it just has such negative connotations associated with it. And so really, I think starting to kind of maybe demystify, uh, what, you know, gentrification is, um, acknowledging how it has been harmful to black and brown communities across the country, but then also, uh, having honest conversations about, um, you know, some of the value, uh, that, uh, developing and building, uh, up a community, um, and, and what that brings. And so, and, and it really, I think when you start to first meet with the, the residents and local stakeholders, it's just about being transparent and listening going in and, and listening what the issues and the problems are, not going in and, and automatically with, you know, preconceived notions or answers or solutions. It's it's first listening and trying to understand what the challenges are and where there are opportunities. And then I think the other piece is you have to kind of do an assessment. Um, we had to do an assessment of the community itself to try to understand, you know, um, just the lay of the land in terms of the the building stock, the context, the vacant lands, uh, you know, the parcels, what city owned, privately owned, you know, where there is there, uh, you know, opportunities for larger concentrated developments, where is it more of an infill strategy, you know, and then um, outside of just residential, what other programs and necessities are needed in terms of open space, right, in terms of access to uh, health care, to education and schools, right, to certain facilities, public facilities, um, infrastructure, transportation. So, you you know, you really have to just have this much, much broader conversation to try to understand, you know, where's the current community at, what's the current population, where are we headed, and what's needed to sustain a healthy neighborhood, a healthy community. That, that just takes, it's a lot of listening sessions. Um, and then when you listen you have to be attentive to the needs and concerns of the communities. And when you come back a second time, you just don't do this in one single meeting. That that doesn't suffice. You know, you need multiple touch points with the community. You need multiple touch points throughout the duration of a project. And every time you come back, you have to show them what you heard, what you learned last time, and how that has how that has either been incorporated or influenced the design and uh, the development of the project. So those are the challenges. Those the, those are the pieces. But I think when you do that effectively, you get much more buy-in, you get much more support. The community feels like they've been thoroughly part of the process, sincerely uh, part of the process. And I think you have more ownership and success at the end of a project, right? It's not something that is just plopped down on a site in the middle of a neighborhood and, and nobody has any real... Uh, any, any real vested interest in it's something that everybody takes pride in and and again it just i think bodes itself well towards the, the success uh, and longevity of any project yeah that's fantastic and it, you know it really sounds like it, it makes the most of kind of your shared background of of urban design and architecture and bringing that all together and then having the patience and the perseverance to, to work through what can be like really um, difficult processes um, when it gets down to the community level, which which is really exciting when, when you think about what the end product can be and thinking about how that it also, you know, can produce affordable housing and, uh, and you have so many benefits. Do, do you find that as, you know, 
as folks are thinking of it from the Noma perspective, right? This is a project that you did in, in your day-to-day work. Um, is is there a growing consideration of the of these big issues? Uh, it seems like you're almost uniquely qualified, but I'm sure a lot of people are are building this out um, and and having that full perspective as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would I would you know we have tons of Noma members, really really talented um, and uh, well experienced members across the country that are doing just so much impactful work in these in these communities. And, you know, if we're being honest, I would say most black and brown architects, their first projects are residential projects. You know, uh, they're not uh, coming out the gate working on commercial spaces, retail spaces, uh, large office buildings, or, re- or even large residential developments. They're, oh, they're usually working um, with uh, low-rise product, uh, small-scale, single-family, multi-units, three flats, six flats, townhomes. Those are the type of projects that they're typically touching and they're starting to build their practice. So um, this is like the foundation of their work. And then over time, they scale and build and they're able to really expand into other practice areas and other markets. Um, so, but we have you know tons of, uh, I would say, I'm really, really proud of uh, the NOMA members that we have across the country that are just doing some really, really amazing, impactful work. Um, both, I would say, market rate, luxury, uh, residential design, um, all the way to affordable housing, mixed income developments. Um, one in particular, uh, Hamilton Anderson and Associates uh, out of Detroit, Rainy Hamilton, has been a long time, long time NOMA member, was even president of the Detroit NOMA chapter, and uh, he's one of the founders of the firm, uh, they are doing um, large-scale residential development projects in Detroit. And I think we all know just uh, how exciting the development and the projects are currently uh, in that city, in that market. And they have been one of those uh, one of those teams, one of those design teams that have been at the forefront leading the way. They have uh, been partnering with so many different developers uh, uh, in the Detroit, Detroit market on a variety of different projects, but primarily a lot of residential projects, which is really exciting. And, and then, you know, we have um, some uh, members uh, even here in Chicago, the um, NOMA firms that have been a long established. Uh, Johnson & Lee is a firm that's been around for a very long time, doing really great work. Uh, um, Brooke Architecture, Ramona Westbrook, she does a lot of uh, residential low-rise and affordable housing projects, um, working with uh, the Chicago Housing Authority and a variety of other developers across the city. Um, So really, really great projects that are coming out, some of these teams. Um, And then even in New York, uh, we have, you know, uh, architects, we have NOMA members that are doing high-end luxury design. Uh, Will Bois, uh, who's um, uh, Will Bois Design out of uh, New York City, um, he is doing um, you know amazing projects, very very high end luxury residential uh, projects uh, throughout all five boroughs of New York. So lots of different touch points, lots of different members doing just really really I think uh, amazing things when it comes to the residential design market. That's so exciting, and you know, want to tie this back to the educational uh, part and sort of setting the the tone for the industry a bit. So NOMA is one of several organizations uh, in the architecture field that have some level of influence on the field itself and, and what's taught and, and how that comes together. Can we, can we spend a little bit of time on you know, just that landscape? Who are the other organizations and how does this fit together? Sure, absolutely. So actually glad you uh, asked that as well. So there are 
what we called uh, previously, we, we had what was called the five collaterals. And these are five organizations that really kind of shape and own and, and, and really lead the architecture design industry all the way from the education, uh, the accreditation of programs, uh, the curriculum that's taught to your, your, your governing bodies that, you know, they have to go through in terms of licensure. And then also those organizations that serve its membership base, right. Uh, that serve the practitioners. And so those five organizations included AIA, which is the American Institute of Architects, AIAS, which is the student um, organization uh, or, or uh, counterpart to AIA, ACSA, which is the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture, NAB, which is the National Architecture Accreditation Board, and then NCAR, um, which is uh, the National Council of Architecture Registration Board. And so those five organizations uh, were known as the collaterals, and, and they really help shape, define, lead, and, and govern the industry. Well, really, really excited to, to share that, um, you know, two years ago, NOMA was welcomed into the fold as the sixth organization. Uh, and, and so um, this is huge. This is really, really uh, critical. It's really, really exciting. And it, but it's also really, really important because I'll be honest, over the last 50 years that uh, NOMA has been around, sure, we've had engagements and conversations with all five of the collaterals. Um, we, you know, maybe we'll get invited to attend a conference here speaker give a seminar presentation there maybe attend a networking event or maybe a meeting uh, you know leadership meeting but never were we part of the collateral uh, which we now call the alliance organizations now with the six of us uh, we we uh, we call ourselves the alliance organizations and um, it's really really a, an exciting opportunity in fact I'll be in DC next week uh, for the six presidents meeting. So twice a year, once in the spring and then once in the fall, we all meet in DC, mostly because almost all the organizations, their headquarters are in DC. So we all meet in DC, all presidents, all six presidents of the organizations and their president elects and their executive directors. So um, we, we come together and we really uh, find opportunity to really kind of uh, talk through different strategies, different things that we're all working on, where there's alignment, synergy, and support, how we can help each other uh, and, and work together. So this is great. This is really, really exciting for us because, you know, we not only have a seat at the table, but we are part of the process. We are part of the conversations, um, you know, and, and, and we are able to really weigh in and interject and, and support and encourage or, or dissuade or discourage um, you know, certain conversations or, or proposals or, uh, I, I would say, um, uh, initiatives and programs that are coming out to ensure that we are being equitable uh, and smart and inclusive in all of, our, um, all of our programming, all of our ideas. So really, really great opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sort of changing the system, right? It's a, it's a systemic difference coming from, from this that, that sounds incredibly beneficial. Absolutely. And, and just a tremendous opportunity uh, for us. And, and I think, and even in this short amount of time, the two years that we've been working with them, I mean, it's just been, I think, really, really uh, amazing to see how much progress we've been able to make. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're finding these 
we're, we're finding support, um, you know, uh, across the board. We're connecting the dots, and you know, we're uh, I think being uh, I think very deliberate and intentional about where we are spending our time and our resources uh, to move the needle and change the face of architecture, as we as we described. It will be really interesting to see sort of how the curriculums change over time, how the the areas of focus in in education might change. And yes, a lot of work to do with education overall. Um, you know, there's there's that I, I think there's there's just a, a challenge that the industry in and of itself is going to have to face. Um, you know, enrollment overall, um, you know, has dipped in, in in recent years. You know, it's it's. It's amazing how much school you have to go through uh, to become an architect, and then your starting salary is almost equivalent and comparable to a teacher. It's amazing, you know, the number of exams that you have to take and the liability you take on uh, when you're stamping drawings on a project, on a development, right? And and so when and and students are smart. You know, they, they have information at the end of their fingertips now, and you know, it's it's very easy for them to figure out what the return on investment is in terms of, okay, I got to go to school for five years or six years. And I, you know, my starting salary is X and, and I have to do, I have to take these number of exams and I have to do X, Y, Z versus these other, uh, you know, career opportunities or these other fields that seem, you know, much more appealing, much more uh, interesting and, and pay better. And so those are some of the challenges that we, that we are kind of facing now. And then, even on top of that, I would say the education that architects get, I mean, it's really, it's a really robust and unique education. You know, you're, you're, you're taught to think about problems in a very, very different and strategic way. Um, and, and the way you're able to kind of visualize and, and form space before it's even there, right? Before it's on paper. And um, what we have recognized and what other industries have seen is those, those uh, skill sets are really, really valuable on any team, uh, even outside of the industry. And so what, we're, what we've seen now is a wave of folks that are getting pulled and, and recruited into the tech industry or into um, you know other, uh, other industries, uh, other markets. Um, and it is really, I think, kind of you know, uh, hit us hard to where you know, we have, I think, some challenges in the industry overall in terms of uh, filling a talent gap finding qualified, um, you know, uh, professionals, architects, young professionals, even mid-career level, you know, it's, it's, it's been a real challenge. And so there's a lot of work that we need to do, I think, with the education piece. And then there's a lot of advocacy and support work that we have to do on the professional practitioner side um, in order to ensure that architects have a fair wage, livable wage and salary and, you know, are, are well compensated for the work that we do that, you know, that, that clients and the development and cities and our communities understand the power of design, how important design is and, you know, and, and how much better having an architect or a planner or a designer on your team can make a project or development. You know, especially like when we're in the midst of a time, you know, such a profound affordable housing shortage, right? And so much that needs to be done across the country to sort of close that gap and, and do it in a thoughtful way. That can't really just be handled uh, on a vernacular basis, right? It it has to be done deliberately, and and everything you're describing, those are all the the skills and the approaches that that go into making the most out of the opportunity in front of us, absolutely um, across the industry. So, 
really exciting uh, to hear about what you're doing and, and uh, can't wait to see more materialize over time. And on that note, uh, before we wrap up our, our conversation today, what are a few things that you're, you're looking forward to where, uh, you know, just looking ahead the next next five years, next 10 years that you re- really want to see happen in, in the industry and, and on the ground? Well, I'll, you know, kind of tie it to, I would first say, um, tie it back to Nomad, then also kind of like cap it in terms of what I think we need to see in terms of uh, the development of communities and, and residential and, and just housing uh, developments in general. On the industry and Noma side, I'm, I'm just really, really excited at the next generation and those that are going to kind of carry the torch. I, I think for the first time in a long time, I'm seeing very sincere and authentic uh, support towards expanding DEI strategies. I am seeing firms and organizations really dig their heels in. They're not doing this. They're not supporting NOMA or DEI to to check a box. Um, you know, I'm seeing firms that are very, very uh, uh, intentional about how they are approaching uh, the, the, the strategies to diversify and expand uh, their project teams. They are looking at strategic ways to expand their um their, the diversity of their leadership. And they're also looking at uh, ways to diversify um, their um, their project teams itself, external, the, the, the partners, the consultants, the folks that they work with, the folks they work with on projects uh, to, to develop and bring forth projects. And so I'm really, really excited about that. My own firm, uh, Ginzer, um, they actually, uh, this will be the second year now where we are putting out a diversity report where we are sharing our metrics. Uh, we are tracking our metrics again you can't manage what you don't measure and so they are walking the walk and um you know and and sharing uh the diversity metrics on how the firm is progressing how we're moving towards these targets how we are diversifying our workforce how we are diversifying and connecting with students and talent and interns and how we are also engaged with our clients and our communities to move this forward and um what i love about that is that there's real authorship and ownership saying that, look, we know our numbers aren't great. You know, they're not great across the industry as a whole, but check in with us. We're owning our numbers and check in with us, you know, in a year's time or in two years time. And, you know, we want you to hold us accountable because we are making progress and we've put, we've set forth X, Y, Z in order to do so in order to be successful in this. And so you're starting to see a lot of that take place across the industry, which I'm really, really excited about. Um, I mentioned also, you know, again, the alliance with the, uh, the alliance organizations now, NOMA's uh, being welcomed into the fold. And so this is, again, a tremendous opportunity. We are just now at the beginning incipient stages of really strengthening and building this relationship. And so really excited about the direction that this is headed, the conversations that, that we are having, the ways we are trying to create, I think, tangible value for all of our memberships, uh, all of our members is, I think, really, really exciting. Um, I'm excited for my successor, uh, Pascal Sablon. She's based out of New York. She is phenomenal. She will be taking over the leadership reins uh, for NOMA starting January 1st. And if you don't know her, please look her up, Pascal Sablon. She works for David Ajay and Associates. She's one of the uh, office leaders in the New York office. And she's just amazing. I mean, she is just a... um, a true trailblazer and she is really i think going to help uh, expand the organization expand noma uh, to uh, start to welcome in and support uh, international chapters and members 
So that's exciting. Um, on the development side, on the on the residential and, and I would say development side, you know, I'm anxious to see there's a lot of development that's going on. And I think we all recognize that there's a huge crisis right now with housing, primarily affordable housing. And we need production. We need we need more work. We need more units overall in most cities. Um, I, I really want to see more policy being discussed and and in place and actually incorporated into some of these developments. You know, we we have to aggressively build more middle income housing uh, across the country. You know, um, we 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 need to find a way to get away from, you know, the, the dirty buzzword of gentrification and have honest conversations and, and find ways to protect the residents that have been a part of these communities. You know, can we reduce or freeze property taxes, you know, to protect these longtime residents? How do we protect senior homeowners or create supportive programs for, you know, families or residents to age in place? How do you, uh, you know, be thoughtful, I think, about, uh, our approach to luxury scale uh, development in at-risk neighborhoods. I think there needs to be, you know, some 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 guide rails and some honest conversations, and even I would say requirements or restrictions, uh, you know, to prohibit large-scale luxury development in, in in some of these neighborhoods. And then, you know, ha- um, also just exploration ideas around creating stabilization vouchers, you know, to, for community development advocates, you know, way to uh, propose that the, the government uh, create a new type of housing voucher to be awarded to longtime residents or low-income communities, you know, to help them stay in these communities, you know, when the gentrification, when the support, when the development uh, comes in, it really poses us a serious risk. So, um, and and then just the way we, we, we talk about fair housing, I think there just needs to be, <clears throat> there needs to be a change in the fair housing rules, um, you know, in, in order to provide, I think, more federal resources, uh, you know, to some of these at-risk majority minority neighborhoods. Well, Jason, thank you so much. I and mean, so many interesting things to to be focused on and, and uh, you know, dig into further and, and develop. I really appreciate you being on, on with us today. Such a great conversation. Absolutely. I really appreciate it, Corey. Thank you for having me again and, you know, providing an opportunity, a platform for me to share my story, um, share the rich history and legacy of NOMA uh, with all of uh, with all of you uh, and your members and your listeners. Um, and then also just to, I think, kind of share my thoughts on where the industry is going and how I think we can probably better serve all of our communities to provide uh, quality design for all. The Freddie Mac Multifamily Podcast is produced and supported by a team of our Freddie Mac colleagues, including our production leads, Jenny Wynn and Raquel Sams, and audio producer, Dalton O'Cola. To listen to more and keep up with the latest episodes, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And check our website, mf.freddiemac.com slash research for the full catalog of podcast episodes and original Freddie Mac research.